Our scripture reading this morning is John chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, and then verses 9 to 11. Mary announced Jesus at Bethany. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sharon. Good morning. Um, if you have a Bible, open it up to, to that passage, John chapter 12. Um, we're taking a wee two-week break from our series in Luke's Gospel. Uh, we'll put that on hold as we make our way through Holy Week and into Resurrection Sunday. Uh, happy Palm Sunday. Um, I know not everyone uh, here maybe comes from a tradition that uh, observes and celebrates Holy Week, but we do at Village. We find it really, really helpful and useful. Um, uh, to remind you, Holy Week begins today with Palm Sunday, and then it ends on Saturday. So Easter is not part of Holy Week. Um, it's a week that uh, begins very exciting. It's bright. There's shouts of praise uh, as Jesus uh, rides triumphantly into Jerusalem. Um, but as we know the story, as, as the week goes on, those cries of praise grow fainter and fainter. Uh, and shouts of, of kill this person, crucify him, uh, get louder and louder. Uh, the week ends in death. It, the Holy Week ends with darkness and silence um, and the deepest sadness. Um, but my prayer this week has been that just the Lord would use our Holy Week reflections on Zoom, our Good Friday service, uh, just as we walk through the shadows, the, the, the sufferings and the crucifixion, um, go deeper and deeper into the darkness. I pray he'd, he'd use those things and those events and those reflections to prepare us uh, for the celebration, for the glory that is uh, next Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Um, let me pray for us one more time. We'll look at our passage. Uh, Father, we want to uh, come before you humbly right now. And we thank you for your word that uh, is living and it's active. It's, it's like a good surgeon that, that slices us open to heal us. Um, Lord, I feel this morning might be a bit of a slicing open for some of us. And we thank you for that, Lord. I pray you'd use um, uh, my weak efforts, Lord, to, uh, to point people to, to King Jesus. Pray that would be the outcome of today, Lord. We go away uh, gazing at you, glorying in you. Pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Um, 18 and a half minutes of missing deleted tape was all it took to take down the most powerful man in the world, uh, the President of the United States at the time, Richard Nixon. Um, you might be familiar with the, the Watergate scandal which was 18 and a half minutes of deleted tape was part of that. Um, likely guilty, likely uh, about to be kicked out of his office. Uh, Richard Nixon or others on his behalf 
uh, deleted 18 and a half minutes uh, of evidence, destroyed 18 and a half minutes of evidence. Um, as history shows us, it didn't really help them at all, but often what we see is when people's backs are against the wall, when there's not a defense to be given, um, when, when they have, they're in a tight spot with very few options, uh, many times people resort to the destruction of evidence. Um, today's story uh, that we're looking at deals with exactly that. Um, it's centered around uh, the story of Lazarus. John spends more time than any other gospel writers uh, detailing Jesus raising his, his dear friend Lazarus from the dead. Um, and these last three verses here kind of wrap up that story, but they also kind of set us up, if you will, for uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem the very next day. Um, I'm just going to read those, those, those three verses, 9 to 11. Those are the only ones we're going to look at. I'm going to read it one more time because it's three verses. It says, when a large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there, where is there? Verse 1 and 2 tell us, talking about Bethany. So chapter, all of chapter 11 is Jesus going to Bethany, this town that's just outside of Jerusalem, to raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. Um, Jesus does that. Him and his disciples kind of retreat into the wilderness. And they're back here, not long after, back in Bethany, back at Lazarus and Mary and Martha's house. Um, large crowd of Jews learn that he's back in Bethany with, with, with Lazarus, and they came not only account to, to him to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Why? Because on account of him, many, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. So when you refuse to join them, uh, when you cannot let them win, what is left but to destroy them? Um, we see in this section Israel's leadership, uh, which was a religious leadership, these chief priests, they, they, they're plotting their second murder within a very short period of time. Um, here they made plans to uh, kill Lazarus as well, obviously the as well, that person is Jesus. Um, just at the end of chapter 11, just before this, he's, uh, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. Many Jews had, had, had saw him do this. And the result is they're now believing in Jesus. Uh, and the chief priest at the end of chapter 11 and the Pharisees, they gather together and they conspire and they're saying, we can't let this go on. We, we can't let Jesus continue to perform these, these marvelous signs because everyone's going to believe in him <laughs> and we're going to lose our positions. They talk about like Rome's going to come in and, and get rid of us. And so what they do is they made plans to kill Jesus but then now, here, not long after that, they're adding to that hit list. Sounds like a mob, not priests, doesn't it? They're, they're ha adding to this hit list, and they say, Lazarus must go as well. Th these are men, they're willing to do anything to hold on to their power. They're, 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 they have no options left that they're willing to, 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 to do. They, they're, they're not optionless, are they? They could see what Jesus is doing and choose to believe in him. They could become followers of Jesus, but they're unwilling to do that. And so, what's left but to destroy the evidence of Jesus' power? They, 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 what's left but to destroy the evidence of Jesus' authority, of his mercy, of his glory? Um, there's three verses. There's a lot we can actually pull out and learn and actually apply to our lives. But we're going to look at two main things from the passage. And the first thing we'll look at is the slippery slope of sin. 
the slippery slope of sin. One commentator calls this a, a, a sinward spiral, easy to fall into, but often really difficult to get out of. Verse 10 and 11 say, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away believing in Jesus. The key words there are as well. So they've already made plans to kill Jesus. In chapter 11, verse 50, Caiaphas, who is the, the high priest, you can't get any higher in the religious order than, than Caiaphas. He said, hey, it's better for you that one man should die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. So just before this, they've decided that it's worth killing one person uh, to protect the nation and to protect our power, um, which is wild, isn't it? These are the chief priests. These are the, the, the people who are meant to lead God's people in worship. These are the ones who teach them God's law, one of them obviously being, you're not allowed to kill anyone. <laughs> but here they are, they're, they're backed up against the wall and they're saying, well, maybe one. Maybe one is worth it. But then not long after saying that, they're already planning a second one. See, sin is this slippery slope. It's terrifying, isn't it? How easy when we, when we take one step in sin's direction, we can get swept away. We become farther and farther away. We kind of enter into this sinward spiral. And we're proud, aren't we? We're, we're arrogant. We can look at our, the sin in our life and say, it's not that bad. Like, I can, I can bring this back. But the classic example that that's not true for us is King David in 2 Samuel 11. King David's this man, is this hero of the faith. He's this man who's, who's after God's own heart. He wrote a good chunk of the Psalms of our Bibles, and yet we see he's far, far from perfect. He's far from immune to this sinward spiral. We're told in 2 Samuel 11 that, uh, firstly, he's not where he's supposed to be. So as, as king of Israel, he's meant to be leading God's army. He's meant to be leading God's people into, into battle, and yet he's sent others to go and do that in his stead. And while he's at home, while most of his, his friends and family and his su support system are, are off at war, he, he finds himself alone, and he's in, in leisure on his roof. He looks, and he sees this beautiful woman bathing, um, and, and he continues down this downward spiral. Rather than putting that lustful sin to death, he, he invites her over to his house. And him being the king, he's this man in power. He, she likely doesn't have a choice, and he forces himself on her. And she becomes pregnant. And he tries to hide up what he's done here by inviting her husband to come home so that he can sleep with her and cover up David's sin. When that doesn't work, that plan doesn't pan out, he, he then plots to kill this husband by uh, ordering him to, to the front lines. So he's actually brought his commanders into his, his sin as well. It's scary, isn't it, that, that, that our slippery slope can actually easily bring others in as well. After these events unfold, it seems for a while David's just content. He's happy. He's like, fine, it's, it's done. I'm happy to continue life on as normal until a friend would confront him. Like we all need, we pray we'd, we'd have a, a loving, faithful friend to confront us in our sin. And this is the slippery slope of sin. We can often sometimes without even realizing it kind of slip off the edge. And before long, we get carried away. We get carried away farther and farther, and, and we lose more and more control, and we can even come to a place where we don't even recognize our sin anymore. 
Like it just becomes normal to us. It becomes, we're blind to it. And on our passage, just, just days before this leadership had begun plotting to kill Jesus, one man is worth killing in order to protect the nation. But now, not long after, they're already at two. And if you follow the story of Jesus and his disciples and his church, it will not stop there, will it? Stephen and James of that original Jerusalem church, they'll follow. And then this avalanche of lives that are lost as the sinward spiral continues. Brother or sister, maybe this is the main point that you need to grasp today, that, that we all have at some point entered into that sinward spiral, this slippery slope of sin, and maybe that's where you are right now. I want to plead with you very nervously because I have to include myself in this to call upon the name of Jesus, to, to seek help from your brothers or sisters and confess your sin before it's too late. Um, now, as you're thinking, uh, what is that? Like, remember, there's that sinward spiral. It may be things that we we're doing that we know we shouldn't. That's where our minds go right away, isn't it? But it can also be avoiding things that we know we should be doing. These things that God is calling us to do, but we turn and run like Jonah. Like, we can avoid God. And friends, I want you to know that you, you, you have no hope of escaping that slippery slope of sin except for the power of Jesus. Without the hand of Christ to grab a hold of us, without the power of the Holy Spirit to reach in and change our hearts, change our affections, without the will of the Father to grab hold of us and pull us out, you cannot do it on your own. Like it's only, only through Christ. Just in the previous chapter, you, you read about Lazarus being dead in the grave, like really, really dead. Four days he's in there, so dead, so long, they're like, don't take this tomb off because he's going to stink. He's been rotting for four days. And what does Jesus do? He calls out to him, Lazarus, come out. Friends, all of us have been dead in the grave, and we could not have come out unless for Christ's effectual call saying, come out. And maybe you're a Christian right now and you're finding yourself in that place, that, that slippery slope, that downward spiral, and the same thing is true. He calls to us, come out. And through his power we are able. It's that song we sing, it's what Paul says, not I, yet not I, but Christ through me. It's not by my own power at all, but through Jesus. We've been rescued from death by Christ. We're also rescued from that sinward spiral by Christ. The only way out of that slippery slope of sin is by the power of Jesus. Come back to that. But Lazarus, he's been called out of the grave by Jesus, and now he finds himself being targeted. <laughs> He, he, Lazarus, by no power of his own, came out of that grave, and now he finds himself on this list of people who are worth killing. If you're a follower of Jesus today, I want that to be a question that you ask yourself and kind of go away thinking today. Lazarus finds himself, because of the power of Christ in his life, worthy of being killed. I want to ask you if you too would be worth killing. Or would the enemy just ignore you because you don't matter? Lazarus was such evidence of Jesus' power, of Jesus' realness, that they thought 
he's worth getting rid of? Are you living your life in such a way that you are evidence that Jesus is who he actually says he is, that you would be worth killing? Or is the enemy saying, that one doesn't matter? Like, that's, that life is no evidence. He's not causing us any trouble. Leave them alone. In verse 9, we see that Lazarus is the evidence. He's the, he is the living, breathing proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And verse 9 says, this large crowd of Jews learned that Jesus was there in Bethany, and they came not only on account of Him, like not only on account of seeing Jesus, Jesus is worth going to see, but also to see Lazarus. Think about that. Like, like Jesus, you've got Jesus. He is infinitely worth following. He is infinitely worth seeking after and pursuing and Lazarus, he gets this honorable mention in Luke's and John's gospel. They're, not, they're coming not only to see Jesus, but they're also coming to see Lazarus. Why? Because, because he is the evidence. He is the living, breathing proof that Jesus is who he says he is. Lazarus is the evidence of the authority and the power of Jesus. He is the evidence of the mercy and the love and the glory of Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. In the, in the passage, you have Jesus. Jesus is the main character of this passage. The main character isn't Lazarus. It's, it's about Jesus. He's the one who we should go away being amazed by, and they've already plotted to kill him. So you have Jesus. And then you have this large crowd of witnesses that, that knew and saw Lazarus dead, and then they saw Lazarus alive, and they, they can like look and testify to who Jesus is and what he has done. And then you have Lazarus, just one man, the evidence. And you know what? You, you can't kill all the witnesses, but you can destroy the evidence. Then they would negate the witness, wouldn't they? Like they, could, the, the, they would say, hey, look, all these people are saying this, but where's the proof? Where's the evidence? Lazarus is the evidence of the power of Christ to raise someone from the dead and he must be killed because of it. That's the, that's the work of our enemy. The enemy, the enemy knows he can't kill the witnesses, but he can get rid of the evidence. When we think about it this morning, we, we know that the witnesses of Christ are long and dead. They've come before us, they're, they're behind us, and yet we have their testimony, right? We, we have their written testimony, their, what they experienced, what they saw, what they heard of Jesus' power. Their witness still lives in the Word of God, which, which stands, it stands as testimony if to hundreds, if not thousands of witnesses who saw and experienced the resurrected Christ, who saw and experienced His power. Uh, two verses come to mind that we've studied, you should be familiar with those, that, that talk about the nature of Scripture being about the witness of, of who Christ is. Firstly, of uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, remember that one? It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every weight, every sin which entangles us, and run the race of endurance that is set before us. So that cloud of witnesses are those people who are mentioned who uh, have, have come before us, many of whom are their words, their witnesses are in our Bibles. 
Um, another verse that we've looked at even more recently is, is Luke chapter 1, verse 1 to 4. Remember, Luke begins by saying, And as much as I have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, O most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. So these witnesses have, have come before us, and that witness, it still lives today. Even, but even in, in the court system today, if you have a witness who's unable to, to be there or maybe dies, but you have their written testimony, that's enough to convict. That's, that written testimony holds weight in court. So we, we have our witness, but do we have the evidence? The evidence that, that what the witness says is true. In our passage, the evidence is Lazarus for all to see that Christ did in fact have the power to raise a man from the dead. He was the evidence that Christ, that Jesus was able to cause a dead, rotting man to come out of a grave. And you know what? That same evidence that we have in Lazarus, we still have today in every single believer, in you, in me. You see, what Lazarus was, we too are supposed to be. That the evidence of the work and the power of Christ, the, the living, breathing proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that proves the witness of Scripture is true. You might be thinking, Lazarus, he was dead, like physically dead for four days. How can we compete with that? But you can because if you are a Christian, you have experienced an even greater resurrection than Lazarus experienced when he walked out of that tomb that day. That was a physical resurrection. One day, Lazarus died again, which sucks, doesn't it? Like, dying must suck, and Lazarus had to do it twice. The resurrection that, that we have experienced in Christ is far greater than that. If you have placed your faith in Jesus, you too have been also raised from the dead, but an even more serious and even more lasting death, a spiritual death. That's how Paul explains your salvation in Ephesians 2. He says, well, you, were, you were dead in your sins. You were dead in your trespasses. But even when we were dead in our trespasses, he, God, made us alive together in Christ. We have been brought out of the grave. Friends, the evidence of the power and the work of Christ, the proof that he is still alive, the proof that Jesus is who he says he is, is that you and I have been brought from death to life and made alive together in Christ. You are the living, breathing proof that Jesus is who he says he is. And so let me ask you again, when you, when you look at your life, are you evidence of the power and the work of Christ? Are you living your new resurrection life in a way that is evidence that Jesus is who he says he is? My fear is that for many of us, the answer would be no. For many of us, we, we can be so stuck in our old life that people look at us and say, I don't see anything different. They say, I, I hear your words. I, I hear you say you, 
you read your Bible and you come to church and you have Christian friends, but the world looks and says, show me. If Christ is true, then prove it to me. And the only way I know how to do that is through the life of those who have been raised from death to life. And that's exactly what Jesus said as well. In the next chapter, John 13, he gets his disciples together for that, that meal before he goes to the cross. And he looks at them and he says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Jesus says that the world will know that you are my disciples. The world will know that you have been brought from death to life by the way that you love one another. So he says, love one another the way I have loved you. That's a serious love, isn't it? Like that's a scary kind of love. It's a sacrificial love. It's a love that, that doesn't count itself as the center of the universe. It's a love that gives its life away, lays its life down for its friend. And Jesus says, you will be living, breathing proof that I am who I say I am by the way that you live, by the way that you love one another. John 17, he makes the same point again. This is his high priestly prayer. He's praying to the Father before he goes to the cross. And through that prayer, he's praying for the unity of his church, of the unity of his followers. In verse 22, he says to the Father, he says, the glory that you have given to me, think of that. That's unspeakable glory. He says, the glory that you have given to me, I have given to them. Why? That they may be one, even as we are one, Father. That's incredible. That's an unbreakable kind of love, an unbreakable kind of unity. That's what Jesus is praying for us. He's like, may they be one just like we are one. I and them, you and me, so that they may be perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus says your new resurrection life the way that you live, that's the evidence that I am who I say I am, that I am come to do what I say I came to do. Brother or sister, are you evidence of Jesus' power and his glory? If you are, then I have news for you. It's not amazing news. It's kind of scary in a way. Because if you are living your life in a way that is evidence of the power of Christ, then there's an enemy who wants to kill you. You see, Lazarus, he wasn't this exception. Lazarus is the model. As they wanted to kill him, we too, who are living evidence of the truth of the gospel, will also be targeted, will also be added to that list. Because Christ cannot be killed. The, the, the witness cannot be destroyed. But the evidence, the evidence is when it gets dangerous. Because we have an enemy, the devil, who is real and he is seeking to destroy us. John 10, Jesus speaks of that enemy as a thief who comes to, to steal and to kill and to destroy 
1 Peter 5, 8 says, your adversary is, is the, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And some, some may have enemies who are flesh and blood. Some Christians around the world have enemies who are seeking to destroy them. But the scripture tells us that our battle is not with those people. Our battle, our fight is with not with flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of darkness. The, our, our enemy is the devil. It's Satan who seeks to destroy the work of the cross, the power of the resurrection in our lives. Satan would love to see us destroyed. Listen, there are people in governments that are seeking to destroy the mission of Jesus Christ who act in demonic ways, but they also cannot destroy, they cannot kill Christ. They cannot destroy the witness, so they seek to destroy believers. There is actual persecution of Christians around the world. We should be careful not to compare our hardships to that. But for most of us here today, the primary way the enemy seeks to destroy the evidence is something that we've already talked about. There's a slippery slope of sin. Nothing destroys the evidence of the power and the work of God in our lives more than our own sin. We don't need an external enemy, do we? Because we have an internal one. We have that, that Hebrews 12, we have the sin that clings to us, that entangles us, the sin that, that, that causes us to slide down that downward spiral so often it starts in our hearts and then it begins to seep out into the world. We have these daily opportunities to, to choose to, to follow our sinful desires rather than be victorious in Christ. And when we, in those moments when we choose the former, we are led down a path. And that path begins to speak to us. It begins to preach to us. It begins to tell you lies like, you're not really a follower of Jesus. You don't really have the Holy Spirit living within you. It may even begin to tell you things like, Christ isn't real. When we get in that sinward spiral, even we begin to think that the evidence is gone. And friends, I hope that, that if that has been you or if that is you, that, that you or someone you love has been able to speak the truth of the gospel to you. That's what you desperately need. At Village, we talk about the importance of preaching the gospel to ourselves, don't we? And we can say some really nasty, hurtful things to people, sometimes to their faiths, mostly behind their backs, but the people that we speak the worst to is often ourselves, isn't it? We should be speaking the gospel to ourselves. And when you're in that downward spiral of sin, you need yourself or someone else to remind you the truth of the gospel, that you would be able to be pulled out of that spiral, that the evidence of the power of Christ in your life would not be crushed. Let me say it again. Satan doesn't need an external enemy to destroy the evidence of Christ's power and glory. He uses our own sin to do so. So don't believe the, the lies of the enemy. Peter says, be sober-minded, be, be watchful because that devil is prowling around. Be careful. Know the truth. Speak the truth to yourself. If you have come to Jesus to be washed of your sins, 
If you have been raised to, from life to death, if you have made him your life, your, your, the Lord of your life, then it is so. It is so. And nothing you can do, nothing the enemy can do can change that. Don't let him rip that from you. Don't let him destroy that evidence. If this is you right now, it's time to confess. It's time to seek help, to cry out to Jesus, to cry out to your fellow brother or sister who will help you in your sin, who will help you move from that sin, that addiction, that pain, that problem that seeks to destroy. And like right now is the time, not tomorrow, not next week, right now. Imagine what our church would look like if we started to uh, take our sin seriously. Imagine what we'd experience. Imagine what the Lord could do here. I believe this is the hardest part of being a follower of Jesus. I think it's the hardest part of the Christian journey. It's easy to come to church. It's easy to come and, and sing songs of praise. The hardest part is when you're sliding down that slippery slope of sin to come to a brother and sister and say, I'm falling away. Help. But listen to me. Even when you come and confess even your darkest sin, within the confines of a community who is pursuing Jesus, you will be met with grace and mercy. You will be met with love and not condemnation and guilt. The enemy tries to convince you the opposite. The enemy tries to convince you that if, uh, if you let others into your darkness, if they know what you've done, then you will lose something. That's what the priests were afraid of. We're going to lose our positions. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says the opposite is true. The gospel of Jesus says you actually have everything to gain by giving up your life. You have everything to gain. You see, confession in the church of Jesus is not where power is lost. It's where power is released. Because when you confess your sin, you're declaring that the on the cross, Jesus has declared that death has no power over you. Sin and death have no authority over you. Sin and death have been broken on the cross of Jesus. And when we confess our sins, the power of that resurrection is released. Do you believe that? Do you believe that, or are you terrified of losing everything? I mean, wonder what would happen to our church if we started to believe that. If we were no longer afraid of losing everything by letting people into our failures, what if we were actually quick to confess, quick to release the power of the cross and the resurrection? And it's real. I promise you it's real. A brother came to me recently. This man loves Jesus and says, I'm, I'm on the slippery slope of sin. You know what I said to him? I love you. Jesus loves you. Let me pray for you. How can, how can I remind you of the gospel and help pull you out of that sinward spiral? I didn't go away thinking, man, he is filthy. How dare him? I went away actually thanking him <laughs> For his example, thank you for, for confessing, being obedient and confessing sin. I went away thinking, I want to do that. It releases that power. It doesn't, you don't lose anything. 
Oh, what power this church would experience if we started to take dealing with our sin seriously. We need to deal with our sin because as evidence of the power and work of Christ, the truth of forgiveness of sin in our lives, as evidence of the transformation from the old dead lives to new ones in Christ, we too should be like Lazarus. You see, they didn't, they didn't want to kill him simply because he's the evidence that Jesus does indeed raise people from death to life. That's true, but they also wanted to kill him because he was attracting people to Jesus. People were going away from him believing in Jesus. See, when we are living lives in a way that is evidence to the power and the glory of Jesus, we will attract people to Jesus. Why? How does that work? How is it that when people came to see Lazarus, and the text tells us because of him, because of Lazarus, they went away believing in Jesus, why? How does that work? It's because when they got near to him, they got near to Jesus. When they got near to Lazarus, they get near to Jesus. If you go back and read through chapter 11 and 12, I encourage you to do that this week. You, you'll, you'll probably notice that after Jesus rises, la, raises Lazarus from the dead, from then on out, anytime Lazarus is mentioned, where is he? He's with Jesus. At that meal just before, he's there at the table reclining with Jesus. Here, when people come to see Jesus, Lazarus is right there as well. Lazarus' new resurrection life is all about Jesus. It's all about being near to Jesus. It's all about pointing people to Jesus. It's like when this large crowd of people come to see Lazarus, to, to hear his story, he's, he's just all about showing them Jesus. You, you think this is good? He's better. Look at him. And at Village, one of our core values that we seek to develop is pursuing Jesus. We want to people, be a people who make much of Jesus in every single thing we do. He's, he's all that we have to offer. All we do is centered on Jesus, making much of him, pointing people to him. So whether it's in our, our, our Sunday gatherings, in our preaching, in our songs, in our readings, in our welcome, in our taking of communion, in our taking care of our kids, or whether it's out there in our ordinary lives, we make much of Jesus. Our, like our prayer is that you cannot make it through a week of being around village. You can't make it to one Sunday gathering and not go away knowing a little bit more about Jesus, having a little bit more of your, your focus on him. That's our prayer. That's our goal. Because when people see what he's done in us, we point people to Christ. It's not by our own, our own power, not by anything we've done ourselves. It's what he has done. So not only is Lazarus the evidence of Jesus' power and glory, he's attracting people to Jesus. As, uh, Lazarus is the evidence of the power and work and the glory of Christ. Because of that, Lazarus is worth killing. The question we have to answer is, are we? Is the power of Christ in our lives so evident that the enemy cannot let us keep going uh, without attacking, without the, the risk that if he lets us go, he will lose control. Lazarus was worth killing, and my, my kind of dark prayer is that we would be too. 
Just after this scene, Jesus makes that triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The crowds are shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As we've already mentioned, is that as Jesus' final week goes on, those praises grow fainter, don't they? And the shouts of crucify him get louder and louder. And Jesus makes his way to the cross to be killed. That's why he came. That was his purpose. And of course, he told his disciples, we would be hated as well. He told his disciples, we will be attacked as well. You should expect that, he says. It's interesting, isn't it, that that's already coming true for Lazarus before Jesus even goes to the cross. But those attacks only come when we are living lives that are worthy of it. When we are abiding in Jesus, when we are spending time with him, we want to be with him. And then we live these lives that are a result of that. Lives that actually turn from sin. Lives that actually extend his compassion to others. Lives that aim to make him famous. When we are living that way, we become a threat to the enemy of this world. Christian, are you worth killing? Would you stand with me and we'll pray.